Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, GSA hits the brakes on a huge contract. I think we're talking here of a kind of a, you know, additional delay of weeks rather than months. A vision of the president's management agenda. If you're a senior agency executive right now, you have a very clear statement of your boss's intent. And the intellectual property problem at the Pentagon. I'm not sure that the department really understands what its requirements are for IT at the beginning of a weapon system, which I think is really the heart of the issue. It's Monday, December 6th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Agencies have new orders from the Office of Management and Budget on working with their inspectors general. A memo from Acting Director Shalonda Young and Deputy Director for Management Jason Miller says the Biden administration expects agencies will, quote, restore and respect the integrity and independence of their respective agency inspectors general and work with the Congress to ensure that IG offices can exercise their vital oversight role. OMB developed the guidance with help from the Council on Inspectors General for Integrity and Efficiency. Some vendors could lose their spots on the Advantage and e-buy contracts from the General Services Administration over order status reporting. GSA says starting next April, it will suspend vendors with 10 or more product lines that aren't reporting order statuses correctly. If a vendor doesn't have a corrective action plan into GSA within 90 days of suspension, the agency says it'll pull that vendor's contract. GSA is postponing the next step in its Polaris contract. John Hewitt-Jones is writing about it for fedscoop.com. John, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program today. What is Polaris and why is it delayed? Welcome. Hey, Francis. Um, It's one of the latest GSA-managed large IT services procurement government-wide acquisition contracts. It doesn't have a sort of firm ceiling yet, but it's expected to be in the region of around $15 the, the procurement, you know, it's, it's forging ahead, it's going ahead, but the sort of slight holdup here is the delay in, in issuing uh, the request for proposals from certain pools of the companies that will be bidding on this contract. GSA says that they had uh, they had some industry feedback in October where some businesses were asking if the proposal could actually be delayed till after the holidays. Uh, a few people I spoke to suggested that actually, you know, I don't know, it won't make too much difference for small businesses because before or after Christmas, they'll still have 40 to 60 days to get in their proposals to GSA. So um, lots of people are very keen to go ahead and, and get this contract out and to, um, to kind of you know put in their bids, just a bit, bit of a hold up in the solicitation process. How will this delay change the timeline of the contract, John? So um, as far as we know, companies will still have 40 to 60 days once the RFP is out to submit their proposals. That timeline you know, won't really change too much. I think we're talking here of a kind of a you know additional delay of weeks rather than months. Previously, um, GSA had said they expected to get the the RFPs out by December twenty one. Um, bit of a hold up there, but but not too much of a delay to the timeline. John Hewitt Jones writing about this at FedScoop.com. Your story's up now. Thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about all these headlines and lots of other stories at FedScoop.com. The new president's management agenda vision includes three main priorities with strategies under each. 
for agencies to execute. First priority, strengthening the federal workforce. Terry Gertens, president and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. She's former deputy assistant secretary of labor. Terry, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I do want to talk about the PMA vision in a moment, but I want to give you a chance to take a victory lap. First, I read through Congressman Jerry Conley's legislation about OPM that has advanced now to the full house and it's pretty much everything that you and your colleagues at napa said opm should do so i guess congratulations are in order terry welcome well, well francis thank you it's, it's a delight to be here with you and thanks for the, the shout out on the opm report you know this is the kind of impact that we hope academy reports will have that it speaks to the needs of the federal managers and also their oversight partners in congress and i think this one really uh, is well aligned. So we're excited to see Congressman Connolly's uh, initiatives and we'll keep our fingers crossed. Congressman Connolly is going to be on the program next week to talk about that legislation, what he wants to accomplish with it and some other issues. So we'll look forward to that conversation. Uh, Ray, the president's management agenda vision, Terry, what did you see good or bad or maybe missing as you look through this? Well, I think it's important to remember that it is a vision, so it doesn't yet have all the particulars about goals and measures and, and how those are all going to be aligned. We'll have to watch for that. But I'm really encouraged by the language of this vision statement. Um, you know, it lays out a very clear path for what this administration wants to accomplish. Um, I'm delighted to see it so closely aligned with issues the Academy has been working on for a long time around strengthening the federal workforce and focusing on customer experience and really just improving back office operations. I think those are really, really important. But there's one thing I think that's really different about this PMA that we haven't seen in a while. And that's the communication about the values that underpin this vision, right? So to have a, a document that explicitly says that it's important from a values perspective to address equity, dignity, accountability, and results really creates a different framing for this. It gives you the why and the how. I mean, I'm a public administrator, so good public administration is a good in and of itself. But thinking about why it matters for citizens is a really important framing, and I think it's going to connect really strongly with the federal workforce. What do you think that means somebody should do in an agency now, given that it's not a full-blown PMA and there's not detail necessarily about step one, two, three, four, to achieve these goals, what does one do now in your view to lay the groundwork for when you get a full vision, you can move forward and not have done a bunch of things that maybe weren't relevant? You know, that's a great question. Uh, and I go back to my military experience and the concept of commander's intent, right? You would get your mission statement, but at the end of the day, you knew that your commander, your boss wanted you to accomplish certain things. And within your authority, you had some what we also called freedom of maneuver, right? So if you're a senior agency executive right now, you have a very clear statement of your boss's intent. You know that everything you should be working on or everything that you are working on, whether it's a grant or a contract or a program, should be promoting those particular values, should be focused on economic recovery and climate change and how you can leverage the market power of the federal government to accomplish those visions. So you might not know that you need to increase some measure by 5% or 7%, but you know that you should be moving out in that direction. And so anything that an agency lead does in that direction right now is not wasted effort. In fact, it's anticipatory. Do you see cues here that will probably bear themselves out in the fiscal 23 budget request that we should see February, March, somewhere along those lines, Terry? 
Well, we certainly should see the specific cross-agency performance goals that are going to go along with that, this this vision. And I think that's going to be really important because the, the scale of this vision cannot be accomplished without really strong interagency collaboration. So seeing what those particular goals are, who's going to be in charge of them, um, what agencies are going to work together on them, and then whether there's any budget movement to support new investment, if it's not just reshuffling the deck chairs, but they're really going to invest in some of these initiatives, those are the things we'll see when the 23 budget comes out in February. How does one measure success of this or any agenda like this, Terry? Well, uh, I think it's, you know, what people are talking about. I mean, the idea about equity and um, economic development is just part of the conversation about how this administration goes along. So they've really changed the nature of the conversation, first of all. And then I think there are measures that are proxies for success, right? How many contracts, how many new vendors, um, the, the number of people who are participants in different federal assistance programs. Um, but we'll start to see it in how communities look for the future. Is there investment? I mean, the Infrastructure and Investment and Jobs Act is going to tell us a lot. Where do, where do those funds go? How are they... Um, how are they leveraged by the communities that they're going to support? What private investors and nonprofits come to the table? All of that is going to be a key piece in thinking about what does success really look like um, and how do you measure it? You mentioned the fact that this is not a formal president's management agenda and the distinction with the vision in the title of it uh, was not lost on me when I first saw it. But I wonder, given the action that you're suggesting that people and agencies can take today to achieve the goals of this vision, how, I guess the flip side of that is how necessary is the full-blown PMA at some point in the future if people can get going now and can achieve these goals now and so on? Well, I think what this vision serves at is kind of like an initial accelerant. It's like an initial booster rocket. But you still need the goals and you still need the measures so that you can document that success, so that you can be really clear with the American public that these are the things we're tracking. Here's the performance of your government against those metrics. um, And here's the resources we've invested. So being transparent on the back end is really crucial. And that's why you need that full up PMA. And it gives everyone much more detail to work on. But as we said, There's nothing here that should cause anybody to slow down about it. In fact, they could get started now and be ahead of the game when it comes to measuring results. Okay. What's the first thing then that you'll look at, whether for personal or professional interest, when the formal president's management agenda comes out? Well, uh, I think a couple of things. One is what the particular goals are and are they consistent? I mean, there's a lot about this that's new, but there's a lot that's very consistent with the Trump agenda and the Obama agenda before it. And having some consistency around performance measures is really important. So that, I mean, it takes a long time to steer the ship of government. So if you keep coming out with new metrics every year, you don't have enough time to really build a trend. So looking for some consistency in the measures and the metrics and the data, looking at who's in charge or, or designated as the responsible official, and then looking to see if the administration has made any resource commitments that really say, Not only are we talking about this, but we're putting our money where our mouth is, so to speak, and we're really going to make some serious investments. 
Terry Gurton, thanks very much as always. It's great to be with you today. Francis, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. You can read more about the President's Management Agenda Vision in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast, coming on Tuesday's show, the Chief Information Officer of the Office of Personnel Management, Guy Cavallo. That Daily Scoop Podcast debuts Tuesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Defense Department's intellectual property efforts may only be getting part of the job done. The Government Accountability Office found the Pentagon gets IP for the weapons systems it acquires, but it doesn't always get the IP it needs to operate and maintain those systems. Tim DiNapoli's Director of Contracting and National Security Acquisitions Issues at GAO. Tim, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I want to start with a definition. What is the IP cadre that you referred to in your most recent work, and what does it do at the Pentagon? Welcome, Tim. Well, thanks, Francis, for having me on. So the IP cadre is an interesting thing because I think many folks have the wrong impression. So the IP cadre at the OSD level, the Office of Secretary of Defense, is a five-person office headed by uh, the director, Richard Gray, who knows his way around the IP world quite well. But that's a small office. And under DOD's approach, and when they talk about the IP cadre, they're talking not only about the five-person office at OSD, but they're also talking about a constellation of experts out in the military department, defense agencies, those folks that might touch um, IP more directly when we're talking about the acquisition of IP during a major, uh, for a major weapons system. What do the points of contact look like among the office at the OSD level and the offices at the other uh, branches and, and places around the department? So this is where they're still working out kind of practicalities. OSD has a new instruction that came out back in October of 2019, laid out roles, responsibilities, and the usual things that an instruction does. The military departments have, have done similar things. They've rolled out um, implementing instructions and whatnot. And so they've identified folks who are going to be part of this IP cadre at some level. But the question really becomes, who is going to be in the IP cadre? How do they talk to each other? How do they work together? Who is really going to take the lead on certain things, um, certain really key things, such as helping draft solicitation, helping do negotiations with contractors, helping do um, financial valuation and analysis during that stage of an acquisition where, you know, early development, where it's important to know how much IP is worth. Do we need to buy it or license it? And if not, what does that mean down the road? All right. You've got three areas in which you write the IP cadre faces uncertainty. The first one's funding and staffing. Is that the who piece that you just talked about, or is there more to it than that, Tim? No, it's pretty much the who piece because they have, at the OSD level in particular, that five-person shop is really only funded through 2023. So if you're going to establish it on a full-time basis, you need the funding sources. You also need to know, is, is five the right number? Do you need more? Do you need less? And then you, you branch that out to the military department. Same questions. You just have to figure it out. The next area is program support. And you write, the members of the IP cadre at OSD expect to tap into a larger pool of IP experts across DOD, as you've already described. Mm-hmm. 
but you also write and have alluded to the fact that there are not details yet on how that all works. Is there a plan for how that will work, or is that the uncertainty that you're referring to, the fact that we don't know yet exactly what that's going to look like? Yeah, I think they don't know how it's going to look like, which is really important for them to figure it out. And that is one of our recommendations. Look at, you know, figure out the resources, the communication channels, the roles and responsibilities on a more practical level so that you can operationalize this federated approach in an in a efficient and effective manner. The third area is expertise. And you're right, DOD officials said the department lacks sufficient expertise in two key areas, IP valuation and financial analysis. I'm going to guess that there are leading practices in the financial analysis area. Are there leading practices even for IP valuation in a context like a weapon system at the Defense Department? So this, it's, it's a, you know, this is an esoteric and very niche area. <laughs> and in the private sector, um, folks get paid a lot of money to come up with how much IP is worth because that is, you know, as we talk about in the report, this is the lifeblood of companies. Right? This is kind of what makes them special. And they don't want to give it away without reasonable compensation. Right? So um, figuring out from a DOD perspective what the IP that companies have, how much is it worth, and you know, do we license it or do we rely on the contractors for sustainment? Because this is really, Francis, a sustainment issue. As you well know, the cost of a weapon system, not inconsequential, but more than 70% of, of a life cycle cost of the weapon system is in that sustainment arena. And we're really talking about how do we sustain, maintain, and operate weapon systems efficiently and effectively. And if you don't have the right types of, of data, if you don't have the right user manuals, you don't have those types of things that allow the, the logisticians to fix stuff when it breaks, it can be a very expensive proposition if you have to go back to the contractors over and over again. Tim, to that point, I, and I referenced it in the introduction when you first came on the program today, it sounds like, and from reading your work, like the department's doing fine when it comes to acquiring the IP with the original system. And that sustainment piece is where uh, there seems to be a gap. Is there a different process or different valuations or different expertise or whatever required for acquiring a different type of IP, or is it all the same and just not something the department's doing as well as it could be? So I'm not sure that the department really understands what its requirements are for IP at the beginning of a weapon system, which I think is really the heart of the issue. It's not about buying IP or rights in lot three or lot four of a production program. It's really thinking about what rights do I need early on when they're in competitive source selection, when you have two major contractors buying for a major weapon systems, and you're thinking about all those things that we need 20, 30 years down the road. And it's really hard to think about that. How do you know what you're going to need? Mm -hmm. And so this is where, you know, I think the IP instruction and the steps that DOD has taken are good steps. They're baby steps because you really now need to get it down into the field and really think about what we need now so that 20 years from now, the maintainers and the logisticians say, we have what we need. And that's a hard, that's a hard thing. Four recommendations, and you alluded to one of them a few moments ago. What are the things that, uh, that you think among your recommendations DOD should move out on first, or is it, are, they, are they not tiered like that? 
Well, I do think we have to get the IP uh, cadre strategy and, and, you know, the funding, the resources and the communication channels. Those you need to do just to set the foundation. Um, there was one uh, recommendation that deals with exactly what we're talking about, which is detailed manufacturing of process data. It's kind of the heart and soul of, of data. I mean, there's a lot of different types of data, but this is the data that you need to maintain something, right? Um, the IP instruction doesn't address it, probably shouldn't because it's not the right level of information for an instruction, um, but it needs to be someplace. And right now there's some confusion in the department about whether or not we can ask for it. And if so, how do we do that? And there, there are reasons for that. Um, and so what we recommended, DOD said we're going to get a new handbook on IEP coming out next year. We said, let's make sure you, you are clear to your personnel about what you can or cannot do um, during source selection with regard to this detailed manufacturing and process data. Last recommendation, uh, last two recommendations had to do with training. Uh, the Defense Acquisition University is actually doing a pretty good job in revising uh, the IP uh, uh, training program that it has. It looked at all the training um, um, that it has out there. It's in the process of updating those uh, by next year. It has established a credential program based on seven foundational IP courses. So those are all good things. Um, what it hasn't done is in that out year time frame from uh, uh, January 23 to out in 25, um, there are about 60 activities that they identified that they could do, um, but they need to be prioritized because you can't do them all. So let's figure out you know, what they need to do and let's go ahead and go do them. Last but not least related to training, is that the instruction says that all folks who deal with IEP need to be trained. That's a, that's a pretty broad thing when you're talking about the, you know, the hundreds of thousands of people who, who deal with weapon systems. Um, what we recommended is that the director of the IEP cadre work with the directors of acquisition query management uh, in the military departments who are kind of responsible for identifying what training their folks need and just prioritize. Let's figure out who really needs the training first, get them the training, and then you can train everybody else at some level. Tim DiNapoli of the Government Accountability Office, thanks for coming on today. Great to have you. My pleasure, Francis. Thank you. You can find a link to Tim's work in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the podcast on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The CIO at OPM, Guy Cavallos, on Tuesday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.